and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and this week I'm joined by Nick Harding and Alison Moore. Yesterday, Rishi Sunak set out his budget for the next three years, and on this episode, we'll be talking more about what it means for the NHS. Also this week, NHS leaders sent trusts a letter asking them to stop ambulance handover delays immediately. You can imagine how well that has gone down. But first, let's talk about the spending review. And as I said, we're joined by Nick. Uh, Nick, you were particularly focusing on what it means for capital in the NHS. Um, so tell us, what, what were the kind of the, the key points? Yes, so um, the, the capital bit was the most interesting, um, mainly because in terms of revenue funding, um, we already knew what the NHS would be getting and there was nothing new in the budget. Um, so I'm not going to talk about revenue, I'm only going to talk about capital. Um, as uh, listeners will probably know, um, the NHS has been really squeezed on capital in the past. Um, there have been several years where capital budgets have been raided uh, in order to prop up uh, the revenue funding, um, which basically means that the NHS has had less money to spend on things like buildings, uh, technology uh, and so on. So the, and the other aspect is that um, the NHS has often not known what the future capital budgets are going to be for the sort of two, three years ahead. So it's been very much planned on an annual basis, which has led to a lot of frustration uh, from trust chiefs because they don't know how much capital is coming in the year uh, ahead. And often these projects that they're running will obviously take several years. So there's always um, big questions about how they're going to be funded. So this budget um, gave the government a chance to actually set out a three year um plan for for nhs capital funding and they have delivered on more than what the nhs uh, so was asking for so at the moment this financial year the capital budget is around i think it's about eight and a half billion that's certainly what the sort of estimated spend is and um, going into the spending review, the NHS, uh, through the NHS Confederation and the, the Health Foundation, uh, those think tanks, they were calling for uh, the capital budget to rise from uh, 8.5 billion this year to 10.3 billion by 2024-25. Now, what the government has set out in the spending review is that the capital budget is actually going to rise to 11.2 billion. Um, by 2024-25. So there's an extra £900 million of capital funding compared to what the um, the NHS was asking for. And even if you exclude inflation from that £11.2 figure, um, by today's prices, that would sort of roughly equal probably £10.5 So however way you look at it, um, it seems that the government has given the NHS what uh, expert bodies like Confed and uh, the Health Foundation were calling for. So, so it's good news, uh, I think, from that point of view. The I suppose the only question it leaves open from a sort of funding point of view is that the, the capital will only go so far. It will help the NHS, you know, deliver some of the um, projects it needs to reduce the waiting list. But it still doesn't uh, answer the question of how uh, the NHS is going to eradicate its backlog maintenance. Um, so many of the buildings the NHS currently uses are very poor, uh, poor state and uh, need refurbishment. Th with this money, there's not enough money. There's not enough money to um, to to do all that. And then also, obviously, everyone knows the the government's 40 new hospitals program. 
there will need to be some more money coming later in the pipeline, much more money, in fact, to um, uh, to make sure that those hospitals or units or wings uh, can be can be built. So I think the sort of general consensus is that it's 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 good. The government's sort of given the NHS the capital it, it needs to take on a certain amount of challenge in terms of reducing the waiting list. But um, in terms of sort of solving the wider estates issues uh, and projects that are coming up, then more will be needed in future years. Mm. And I think, of course, um, the the 40 new hospitals in inverted commas um, program that we've we've talked about a few times. We've not we've not talked about it for a little while actually, so it might be quite good to get into that a bit. But from a trust perspective, what or the trusts that are part of that scheme, what does the budget mean for them? Uh, at the moment, not very much. Um, so the trusts that are involved in the 40 new hospitals program. Uh, at the moment, the trust with the most advanced plans uh, are waiting for the Department of Health to finish their uh, commercial strategy and to uh, and also waiting for them to finish setting up a what the DH calls a sort of strategic alliance with the construction sector to try and make sure there's enough capacity in the construction market to actually build these hospitals. So for trusts like um, Leicester and Princess Alexandra and uh, West Hertfordshire who are kind of in that first cohort who are hoping to get their new new projects signed off and, and sort of spades in the ground they're still waiting for the green light from the from the government and so mm. this budget confirmed that the money that had already been announced for the next three years for this program is still there and it's going to be be spent um, mm. But in terms of whether or not actually their specific project, so for example, whether Leicester's project will be funded um, by 2025, um, we're still none the wiser uh, and probably won't be until early next year, I would have thought. So from that point of view, it, it's still quite unknown what's going to happen. And so could you just tell us what um, the extra capital will be spent on over the next three years? Yes, so the Department of Health uh, have sort of broken down this to a sort of very high level overview, but it gives us certainly an indication. So um, there is basically of the, so when you've got the capital budget, which is rising to 11.2 billion, the, the DH is saying that within that 5.9 billion is going to be spent on sort of three broad categories. So mm. the first one uh, is transforming diagnostic services um, mm. and that means putting in place uh, about 100 new community community diagnostic centres across England. Uh, so you probably, people have already seen those reported in the news. They're going to be sort of one-stop shops for checks, scans and tests like MRI and CT and they could be in shopping centres or um, football grounds or this sort of they've been a variety of community locations um so 2.3 billion has been allocated for that then there's another pot within the 5.9 billion uh, which is 2.1 billion and that is mm. going to be spent on technology um mm. which is i think will be focused on connecting hospitals more with each other um mm. to make sure that the data between hospitals can flow much better uh, and you know you often hear the complaint from patients that they they go to their gp or they go to this hospital and have to input their data and get asked the same questions over and over again um because the nhs can't access the same data sets um you know even if it's a hospital down the road using a different system i think this money will be sort of focused largely on trying to um 
iron out that particular problem and get the the data sort of flowing much more uh, much more easily between NHS organisations, um, especially within integrated care systems. Mm. Um, so. So there, there's, that's two of the three. So there's the community diagnostic services, there's the technology to connect hospitals, and then the last sort of major category, uh, which they've given one and a half billion for over the next three years, that's going to be for new surgical hubs um, and increased mm. bed capacity and equipment. So I, I assume that's going to be things like, um, you know, ex extending sort of theatres and bringing in potentially like modular buildings to, to create more surgical capacity uh, or bed capacity. Um, so they're kind of the main three themes that we should expect this uh, extra capital to be spent on in the next three years. Mm -hmm. It seems like a huge ask. I mean, obviously, it sounds like a lot of money, but it, it, I think it was Nigel Edwards who said that after many years of um, you know not enough money being put into capital, particularly maintenance backlogs and that sort of thing, um, it's a big ask. To cover yeah, all of that and this money. That money is going to get swallowed up very quickly by the system. There's no doubt about that. And he and Edwards is right to point that out because prior to this year, the capital budget has sort of been averaging very low numbers compared to what it's going to be in the next three years. I think, you know, during George Osborne's reign as Chancellor, I think the NHS capital budget was around sort of four and a half billion for mm. four or five years during sort of 2010 to 2015. Um, and some of that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, ended up being spent as, as revenue funding anyway. Mm. Um, so the NHS has effectively doubled its capital budget now. Um, but because of this sort of long period of neglect, um, it's, it'll certainly take more to actually you know, mm. truly transform the the estate and the equipment to make sure that the NHS can meet the the waiting list challenges much better than they currently can. Mm. Mm. Absolutely, um, and also I, I just might be slightly hypothetical, but because the NHS has been been given what they wanted, um, could it mean that it's harder in future years to kind of get the sums it needs? Is there, I don't know if anyone's sort of work, thinking about that or whether it's like we're just they're just dealing with the, you know, the work that needs to be done in hand. I reckon there's probably an acknowledgement from government that the capital budget has been too small in the last sort of decade, I suppose. Mm. Um, so this does sort of herald a new start. Uh, mm. And so, and, and I think it's acknowledged also that just because they've given enough in the next three years um, doesn't mean that, you know, now all the problems are going to be fixed in three years. And so the budget can go back to being as small as it has been previously. Mm. And as I said as well, you know, there's so much more that needs to be done for it. Just to give you another sort of example, I said the capital budget is going to be 11 billion by 2024-25, but the total cost of the NHS backlog maintenance, so basically the, the, the sort of the cost of fixing every single bit of poor and you know out of date estate in the NHS, that is estimated to be nine billion. So um, you know this is this money, if it was only going to be spent refurbishing buildings, it would just cover it, but of course you'd have to you'd then not be able to spend money on anything else, any other transformation. So obviously that's yeah. not ideal, but it just gives you like an idea of how much money is going to be needed over a long period of time 
to to modernize the NHS estate and and the infrastructure and the equipment needed. So I, I think I don't think the government could sort of look back in 2024 or 25 and say, well, we've given the NHS what it needs. Now the problems yeah. should be solved and we're going to go back to, you know, half the budget that we've had previously. I think that this will be the start of a a longer increase in um, in capital budgets. Certainly that's what NHS chiefs will be hoping. Yeah, I think Dave, I think in the podcast last week, Dave said something very similar, which is this, the politicians view, like we've given you money, you know, what do you need more? But the NHS is like constantly spending money on lots of, you know, huge things and it needs to do that to, to, to just keep going. Yeah. And there's like that disconnect between the service and Whitehall. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting to see the reaction from, um, you know, people like uh, the Confed and the Health Foundation and the King's Fund. And they were all, all their responses were pretty similar um, mm. in the, you know, they welcomed this money. They they said it kind of met the the ask. Um, but then, of course, they caveated that by saying that the budget ignored um, uh, training and education and staffing issues. Uh, you know, there was no detail on that, I believe. Mm. So they obviously were not happy with that. And I guess that's maybe something that you've picked up on as well um, from from your sort of coverage of it. Yeah, so we did have some, some whispers before um, that there might not be a figure attached to education and training in the in the spending review um, and I know that there have been quite tense negotiations between NHS England, the Department of Health and Social Care and of course Health Education England who is responsible for education and training and have their own ring-fenced ring budget of about 4.2 billion um, but yeah no it, it, it just said um, quite vague kind of catch-all things like it will keep building a bigger better trained workforce um, and then training some of the biggest undergraduate intakes of medical students and nurses, supporting a new pipeline of allied health professionals and midwives and it, reaffirming the existing 50,000 more nurses commitment. But yeah, there's like no detail at all. Um, and it kind of struck me as something that had just been put in to be like, oh yeah, we've not forgotten about workforce and education and training, but like nothing's been agreed. And then the Treasury told us yesterday I think they probably regretted saying this, but that it be decided over the coming months, which is obviously quite alarming for people. And then they changed it to in due course, which, you know, um, it, it means like not now, which is a problem. Um, but I think that, um, well, there's been some reports in the Times today about, um, I think Chris Smythe has reported that um, there was an ask from the Treasury that NHS England would cover the cover the workforce and training funding which obviously did not go down very well because um there wouldn't be wouldn't be enough money and i've spoken to people who said there are concerns that there won't be enough money um and i think it just it taps into that this ongoing neglect of investment in workforce and still the lack of a sort of a, a properly costed plan and people have argued said to me there's an argument against coming up with a plan because your workforce needs to change all the time and you know how do you model model against that and it's like well something's better than nothing and I think at the moment there's just there's nothing out in the public domain and um, you know we, we were promised in 2017 that HE were publishing the first workforce strategy in, in um, 20 years and that was supposed to be the thing that set out what the NHS needed how it would be funded and it's 
it's sort of like been a really stop start and different people have been in charge we had dido dido harding julian hartley pray and then they brought in prainer in 2019 um which kind of kick-started its newer incarnation as the people plan the interim people plan sorry and then the people plan and the people pro and it's just this really bitty thing and i think it is true that people have worked together like really well under these different people a lot of people had good things to say about dido harding and how she brought people together to actually focus on workforce but without money it's really hard to see what can be achieved um, yeah. and they talk about they often talk about oh well, we know we'll have more medical students and more nursing nursing students and it's like well where are they going to go when they qualify you need to have enough training places and that was that came out this summer in a story um where the royal college of anaesthetists were it's, it's a slightly complicated story but there's also a short national shortage of training places for junior doctors and many specialists yet there are still rotor gaps and many trusts are putting out frequent calls for expensive locums um because they don't have full rotors and it's it's this weird kind of disjointed thing where we just yeah even if we had loads more medical students where would they go um, I've gone off on one a bit about workforce but um, yeah sorry <laughs> no I just was interested um I mean do we do sort of have any sense of how much like the NHS is saying it needs in sort of training and education budgets versus what the treasury or government would be sort of be, have been willing to, to fund previously like how you know over the capital is almost like like I was saying the estate stuff is it's kind of doubled that's that's been the need but what, what's it like in What's the sort of the gap in, in workforce and education budgets, do you think? Well, I think it's quite hard because a lot of the, has, the work to figure out what is needed hasn't really been done. And it hasn't. Like, so trusts were asked this year to submit to submit data on medical rotor gaps, which I believe was the first time they've been asked to do this in recent years. So and also different like different bits of the country struggle with different types of workforce so it is it's, it is quite hard to put a figure on it i've not seen there's not like a consensus as far as i can see um i know the think tanks have done like a fair bit of work kind of calling for more money i cannot i cannot recall the figure off the top of my head but um it just it feels like um it it feels like there just needs to be um I don't know. People have lost confidence that this is something that is being taken seriously um, mm. by, yeah. well, I don't know about the, the DH, but certainly by the Treasury, I think. And Hunt's been very critical um, after his time as Health Secretary. A few times he said, he's repeated that the Treasury is is sort of standing in the way of a costed, fully costed workforce plan. Um, mm. And then there's this argument that if the money comes out of NHS England's with the total figure, then maybe that would mean there's no longer a ring fence budget for education and training, which could be quite dangerous. Like it probably would result in a in a funding cut. So um, we'll have to see what happens. I think it will. I mean, goodness knows what due course or over the coming months mean. That could mean two months six months when later, when, when do they need to have it sort of completed by i suppose it has to be before the start of the next financial year presumably or yeah so even, you'd, yeah yeah so before the spring you'd expect but um it's if gonna go quickly this, yeah if at this impasse i don't really know i don't really know what's gonna happen um <laughs> but um yeah 
it's certainly an interesting one to follow and although not surprised yesterday it was certainly disappointing especially after covid and how it's sort of shown that we just don't have the resilience and stretch in the system mm. um i suppose I, it's worth mentioning as well like the other victim of the budget seemed to be social care that mm. I, I saw from the um all the think tanks is or responses they all were saying that social care yet again had been left behind um which was a bit demoralizing to see and yeah, yeah especially after all the warm words and indeed promises and um yeah i think there was real hope that it would be a, a tide change um post-covid but sadly not um I think we could talk more about this, but I think we should move on to talking about um, uh, a letter, Alison, that you that you procured <laughs> that was sent um, from Pauline Phillips, Steve Powers, um, very senior people in NHS England to trust. What could you just um, take us through? What did it say? Yes, well, this went out to ICS leads, trust chief executives, trust chairs. And basically, it was about ambulance handover delays, which have become uh, a big issue in many parts of the country. Um, In the Urgent and Emergency Care Recovery 10-Point Action Plan, which only came out last month, there was a requirement for um, trusts to take some action on this or systems to take some action on this. And indeed, many have tried to deal with the problem, but things seem to have got considerably worse because this letter pretty bluntly told people to get on and sort it out immediately and you can imagine how well that went down with um, many of our readers who felt that this was um, ignoring the the severe issues they're facing in A&E departments at the moment with increased Mm -hmm. demand staff shortages as people have to self-isolate and so forth and the whole issue of flow out of the hospital into social care uh, which can build up and cause the the delays in getting people out of A&E and therefore delays of getting people who are sitting on an ambulance into Mm. 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 A&E. Sorry Nick, you go. I'm kind of flabbergasted by this story when I saw it (laughs) I I can believe it and because when I I remember you know when I became a health reporter which isn't that long ago it was sort of 2015 uh, and I recovered the Norfolk and Norwich hospitals and I remember ambulance handovers you know were one of the major issues there that I wrote about and so you know this is not a new issue at all but no. the fact that NHS England sort of write a letter and say well you need, now need to fix this long-standing systemic you know hugely <laughs> complex challenge immediately uh, it just seems like a crazily simplistic way to it, put it and you know would surely provoke outrage from local leaders well mm-hmm. indeed it seems to have done from our readers <laughs> yeah, yeah I think it, Mark Brandreth as one of my favourite tweets said oh that dead horse let's whip it harder and see if we can make it go faster that seemed to be general (laughs) I I saw a tweet suggesting that King Canute was alive and well and working in uh, the NHS England performance management division (laughs) (laughs) yeah Nick you tweeted about King Canute I did yeah yeah that went down quite well as well yeah Yes. But I mean, have, have did, did NHS England sort of provide any kind of tips or, you know, did they say here are the actions you need to take? So if they've, if they've got the solution, which they obviously think must have if they can, if it can be fixed immediately, then what, what is their solution? Well, one would have to say if there's a solution which fixed it immediately, it would have been used before, frankly. <laughs> yeah. um, 
they didn't provide any solutions. What they did provide was a list of initiatives which have been tried in various points around the country. There's about 12 of them and they're all, they're all good sense, but they're not the kind of things you can do overnight. And it's things no. like established surge capacity or priority admission units to care for patients, um, which could, they've suggested could in, include conversion of existing space or temporary accommodation which I read as tents outside A&E. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> yeah. I know, that's a, euphem- a terrible euphemism if ever I've heard one. Yes. Ensure early access to clinical decision makers to enable prompt admission and discharge. Well, I think probably every trust in the country has already looked at that. that. And there, um, there's a, the list goes on and they're, they're all sensible. They're all things that can be done. But frankly, I think most areas are are, are trying this and they're having limited success and one of the reasons they have limited success is that part of the problem is at the back end of hospitals with um, discharge into social care or with support at home and as we all know at the moment that is exceptionally difficult and there is not much money around yes absolutely yeah yeah um, and it's just it's another I suppose, example of why the the sort of capital um What's the phrase I'm looking for? You know, why the the the, the lack of capital available has certainly not helped in this respect, because obviously a lot yeah. of the emergency departments are very small. They get very mm-hmm. crowded. You know, you can't staff them properly with the amount needed of. So, you know, it's just sort of just it's yeah, it's a vicious circle in some ways, isn't it? And that's why even though they've now thrown lots of capital at the NHS now, it's still not you can't just you know, click your fingers and yeah. fix the, the handover issues that have been a uh, one consequence of, of that so it's and there's been a particular issue with covid as well and in terms of infection prevention and control mm-hmm. measures and not being able to use all of the capacity in a and e because you really can't have someone who has covid symptoms sitting very close to someone else and yeah. one of the things that's happened from an ambulance perspective is that pre-covid it was quite common for um, ambulance trusts to to take patients off the ambulance and cohort them um, in you know, perhaps even a corridor, perhaps a corner of A and E, and have one or two ambulance staff remaining with them and looking after them until they could be formally handed over to A and E staff. But you can't you can't do that at the moment. You can't sit eight people coming from on ambulances together without due regard to the risk that they're all going to infect each other. Mm. So that that option has been removed. Um, trusts were also told in the letter yesterday they couldn't use corridor care, uh, which yeah. has obviously been a, something that's been resorted to in the past. So I think most people who got that letter probably thought, where, where on earth do I go on this? You know, what, yeah. what are the options available to me to solve this by tomorrow? Uh, <laughs> and the answer is probably you don't really have many options Um, the the other very interesting thing about the the letter was that um, boards were basically told they should be examining this issue at every board meeting taking time to discuss the challenges with data to support the issue and potentially inviting clinical staff to join in those those discussions Um, I'm sure that that will help help a great deal <laughs> i mean know. you would you would hope that most of them are doing this already wouldn't you you would have thought and not just in board meetings but just you know pretty much on a weekly basis and within their teams yeah uh, yeah i mean i think within managers in a and e 
they're probably looking at this hour by hour. Frankly, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, this is yeah. this is their 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 daily bread, um, mm. dealing with this sort of problem. Um, it's very interesting that the NHS England is talking about using data to support the issue because data on handover um, delays for ambulances is missing for about eight months of the year, and it's only ever published by NHSE as part of the winter sits rep. Mm. Uh, data set which runs from November through to March mm. so most of the year we have no idea how much of a problem this is mm. except mm. if it crops up in particular ambulance service um, board papers. Mm. Which yeah. brings us quite neatly onto the West Midlands we published a story yesterday um, about how they're very you know the, the board, West Midlands Ambulance Service Board is very um, being very honest about the harm it's causing to patients, these dreadful delays. Yes, they are. And they have a particular issue um, in the West Midlands, which is based around a relatively small number of hospitals. Um, mm. I wouldn't want to uh, stigmatise certain hospitals on this, but uh, university hospitals, Birmingham, Worcester and um, probably... Um, uh, the Shrewsbury and Telford hospitals mm. have a very serious issue, which they don't seem to have resolved. I've written about this um, before in the past, as West Midlands Ambulance Services got increasingly frustrated um, about this problem. And yesterday at the board meeting, uh, their nursing director admitted that they knew patients were coming to harm as a result of handover delays and that one of the knock-on effects isn't just the patient who's having to sit outside um, an A&E department in an ambulance, but it's the patients that are, have made a call for ambulance help and it can't be reached because the ambulance is sitting outside an A&E. And mm. the nursing director, Mark Doherty, said that some patients were dying before we get to them. Mm. Now, they've increased their risk rating on the, uh, on this um, because they feel the harm that's occurring is so significant and they've put it at a, a risk level of 25, which is the maximum. I think one other ambulance trust has done the same thing as well. And the description of this is basically that it's catastrophic. It's, in, it, it's inevitably going to happen and it's going to have catastrophic consequences for some individuals. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that the the trust has sort of used that language, and I'm sure quite rightfully upgraded the the risk level because um, often with you know for us that sit through trust board meetings and read board papers, they can often be quite long and quite beige to read, and not much you know not many sort of st strong words mm, in yes. them. But Hold, holding for, back sometimes one feels. Indeed, yeah, but I, but I mean I don't know. This might just be me sort of. Uh, reading too much into it but I do feel like trusts might increasingly start to use their public boards papers and meetings as a way of you know communicating yes. on the ground what is happening because we know that NHS England has tried to keep a very strong lid on communications so you know what mm -hmm. is actually happening in the NHS in terms of the pressure that the trusts are under so I think you know for me I thought well this sounds like it's sort of the first trust which is kind of trying to break a bit free of that and just wants to report what's going on and even though it may lead to some negative headlines um, about you know the pressure of their trust it's worth it because people do need to know what's what's happening um, and that point that Alison was making about the impact on patients who aren't being reached because all the ambulances are stacking up outside the hospital just to take an example in my own 
uh, local patch of West Country, the Ambulance Trust there, Southwest Ambulance Service Trust, they are currently seeing their highest number of uh, call stacking, which I think is where uh, patients have rung 999. They've been sort of spoken to a, an operator who then wants to get an ambulance in, in, in you know, to order to them, but hasn't yet mm-hmm. had the chance to do that. And I think the it was said in the Devon's board papers this this week that that number of sort of patients who are waiting in the queue is now at record levels. And it was something like 370 patients, which sounds like an awful lot of patients waiting to have an ambulance or other response allocated to them. So it's very worrying times. Mm, yeah, so sorry. I suspect that was across the whole of the Southwest Ambulance Service yes. area rather than just Devon. But yes, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's cool stacking is a massive issue and it's a result of not having the resources available to um, send um, to, to, to the patients. And some of those resources will be the ambulances that are stuck outside A&E. I think in uh, the West Midlands area, they had one case of an ambulance that was stuck outside A&E for 13 hours. So, I mean, that's almost unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, it is unbelievable. For, for, yeah. for the person inside the ambulance, but also for the ambulance staff who would yeah. ha- massively overrun their shift as a result of that and probably won't be able to start work the following day at the time planned. So there's all sorts of knock on and disruptive effects as a result of this. Mm, it's so unbelievably scary. And I think it's one of those stories that um, we cover that really you see filtering down and people you know talking about it and talking about how scary it is, I think, because we're sort of used to reporting on pressures in the NHS, but this is sort of, I don't know, it seems like worse than normal. Maybe you disagree, Alison, but to me it seems worse. It, it is much worse than normal, I think, and mm. and I agree that it's filtering down to the, the general public consciousness. Mm. So I was actually in the showers at my local swimming uh, pool the other day and someone was telling me about their mum who'd had to wait mm. 12 hours for an ambulance. I think mm. NHS England have started to realise this, and I think this is why this rather desperate letter has gone out. Mm. Mm. And it's, it uh, could be a big issue this winter, among many big issues for the NHS. But this is mm. one that people will notice, they will hear about from their friends, family and neighbours. And frankly, it, the government probably feels it's uh, got the, the makings of a public relations disaster. Absolutely. And I think you're right, that letter did scream desperation, but just struck all the wrong notes. Yes. Um, Absolutely. Um, Well, I will definitely be coming back to this story um, many times, I'm sure, over this winter. But thank you both so much for joining. I'm going to need to wrap things up now. Um, Just a reminder to listeners that our podcast is available every week on our website and across all main podcast channels. And please don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. Thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week.